Thank you for joining us for Time in the Chapel. Each week we eagerly try to discover what God has been saying to us since time began and even further back than that. Sometimes it's right on the surface. Sometimes we have to dive a little bit deeper, but either way we do our best, lean not on our own understanding, in all our ways acknowledge Him and expect that He will direct our paths. So grab your Bible, prepare your hearts and minds, hit the pause button long enough to pray for the help of the Holy Spirit, and then join me as we open up the treasures of God's Word. Today I want to continue our discussion on the story of the alabaster box, as I promised we would do last week when we did the first installment in this series. So let's quickly read it again. This time we're going to read out of the Gospel of Matthew, starting in chapter 26, verse 7. There came unto him a woman having an alabaster box of very precious ointment, and poured it on his head as he sat at meat. But when his disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, To what purpose is this waste? For this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. When Jesus understood it, it means when Jesus perceived it. He said unto them, Why trouble ye the woman? For she hath wrought a good work upon me. For ye have the poor always with you, but me ye have not always. For in that she hath poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this that this woman hath done be told for memorial of her. We could actually have a 10-part series just on this story, but we have to stay focused. There's so much going on here. Now, this story is found in each of the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, as we just read, Mark, and Luke, as we read last week. As is somewhat common in the Gospels, there are slight differences between these three versions. Now, this is not a big deal, because in reality, None of the Gospels were ever intended to be an exact replica of the other. I mean, why would it be? Each of the Gospels has a specific audience, and because of that, each message has a specific delivery style with the different details being handled a little bit differently, but it's still all truth. Now, we've taught a lot about that before. And as I said, that kind of explains in part why there are variations in this story from one gospel to the next. We'll hit on a couple of those as we move along. Now, I'm sure at least some of you may be wondering, why have we chosen to make a series out of such a relatively brief story? Well, as I've said already, this is a very, very dynamic portion of Scripture that's simply packed full of things to learn. That's reason number one. We treat this story very carefully and very thoroughly because there's so much to be taught on. But it also is something we've chosen to do on a regular basis. This is not the first time we've taught on this. You know that if you're a regular 
to this program. But the other reason why we do it on such a regular basis is because this story appears to be one of our Lord's favorites. Let's read it again. He said, Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this that this woman hath done be told for a memorial of her. He said within that, he told the disciples when they were complaining about the waste, he said, why are you bothering her? She hath wrought a good work upon me. What she did she was a good work, he said. Now the NIV and the International Standard Version translate it, she has done a beautiful thing for me. The original word means a valuable or useful or praiseworthy thing unto me. Now we'll get into how that definition fits in just a moment. But can you imagine Jesus describing something someone does as beautiful? Now, there, the way I see it, there are two ways you take that. It puffs you up, makes you feel proud, walk around telling everybody, hey, Jesus thought what I did was beautiful. What do you got to say about that? I, I don't know why Marlon Brando showed up. Anyways, that's one way you can do it. The other way is, is it humbles you to the ground. It drives you to your knees. You ever met someone that you really respect and or love? When they give you a high compliment, especially someone you know who doesn't normally do such things, not because they're cold, but because their standards are high. Well, that's Jesus. Listen, he wasn't prone to giving out compliments, but whenever he did speak, you just know he knew what he was talking about, and therefore he meant it. Remember this passage? And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. The reputation of Jesus is when he said something, it carried with it authority. It carried with it weight. It meant something. I mean, we all know people, particularly politicians. They'll continuously talk and talk and talk and really the more they talk, the less we invest into what they're saying. That's not Jesus. He didn't go around giving out compliments. So when he did it, it meant something. When he praised someone or something, it was worth praising. He said, Jesus said, she hath wrought a good work on me. This is, remember, a sinful woman. And Jesus was complimenting her. That made those religious people rage inside. They were raging inside, including the disciples. They had been with Jesus long enough now to consider themselves holy. This was near the end of his ministry. This is near the end of probably three years of walking around with this guy. They were starting to get kind of full of themselves. And then this 
sinful woman comes along and pours a little oil out, all of a sudden she's the queen of Sheba to Jesus. That made them rage. But if Jesus said it was a good work, then my friend, it was indeed a good work. In fact, our little story, the alabaster box, in that story, Jesus actually takes it a little further. And I just read it a couple of times. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be reached in the whole world, there all there shall also this that this woman hath done be told for a memorial of her. That's an incredible statement. Why do you think I keep repeating it? Because Get into this. Jesus said, when you tell my story, you better tell hers. He didn't say that about John. He didn't say that about Matthew. He didn't say that about his brother James. He said, when you tell my story, don't forget to tell hers. There aren't too many people that can say that the king of kings commissioned a memorial of them. The instructions of Jesus say that you establish the story of this woman as a memorial, as a reminder of what she did. And again, that's why we go to this so many times in our teaching. We do it out of obedience, of course. But we also do it because whenever you find Jesus praising something, someone you know doesn't spend much time... I mean, how can the King of Kings, the person who was in glory before he put on this tent of human flesh, how do you figure he praises something? And when he does... We better pay attention. We better figure out what it is that gets the praise flowing forth from Jesus. Don't you want to please Jesus? Don't you want to do something that rises to the level of him wanting to tell your story? Of course you do, but not for the glory, I hope, but for the love because you love him. When we, when we love someone, we want to please them. We want our loved one to be happy. And if you don't love Jesus, I don't really know what you're doing listening to this program. I don't know what you're doing reading your Bible. I don't know what you're doing going to church. If you don't love Jesus, then what are you doing? Of course you love Jesus. I know you do. And don't you want him to be happy? When you serve someone, you want what you do in that service to satisfy that one you're serving, right? When you're in a love relationship with someone as wonderful as Jesus, you want to make them happy, don't you? And from what I read, what that woman did, he considered a praiseworthy, worthwhile, valuable thing. Now, by now, by now you, you must know 
my philosophy on scripture. There's, this is it. There's nothing wasted, nothing useless, nothing vain. And by vain, I mean valuable only to itself. Everything in Scripture has value to all of God's children. So Jesus said that whenever and wherever this gospel was preached, this meaning the story of his good news, wherever his story was to be preached, and the original means proclaimed, heralded, told, whenever his story was proclaimed, heralded, told, preached, her story would also be preached. Jesus was praising this woman. She had done a good thing. But that isn't the only reason her story was to be a memorial. You see, all that would really do would bring glory to that woman. That isn't how Jesus works. He doesn't glorify mankind. He glorifies God. So what she did must have been a reflection of either what makes God happy or what God is himself. Otherwise, it's a waste of time. It's a waste of time to tell the story because you could rip out that page and just hand it to that woman because she'd be the only one that needs to know it. That's not the case. It's here. And God said, Jesus said, wherever in the whole world, because that's what he said, wherever in the whole world this story is to be told, the story of myself, the story of the gospel, the story of Jesus coming to save, wherever you tell that story in the whole world, tell her story. Because what I did and what she did are both important. Obviously in different ways, but still important. Therefore, there has to be more to the instruction of Jesus than the glorification of a person. Therefore, we must conclude that Jesus wanted this story preached, proclaimed, heralded, told, because it has something to teach us. Listen, Jesus was a practical man. Now, that isn't to say that praise isn't practical. It most certainly is. It has use. It has value. But like everything else that's recorded in the Gospels, Jesus is going to use this situation, this good work, to further the kingdom. Well, then, John, let me guess. This had to do about giving. You're, Jesus was teaching about giving. Yeah, yeah. Well, yes. But didn't we cover that last week? There's more, much more, actually. Now, let me reset the scene. This woman comes into this little gathering. As you remember from Luke's telling of the story, she was a sinful woman. She has an alabaster box full of perfume. People aren't really sure what alabaster box actually means. Not important to the story. The gospel calls what's contained in there ointment. 
in an obviously intentional way. She opens the box and begins to pour out the ointment, ointment on Jesus. Now, again, by the way, this is another place where people get kind of hung up. Both Mark and Matthew say this perfumed oil, this ointment, was poured on Jesus' head. Luke says it was on the feet. Well, can I say that despite what the critics think, this is not a contradiction? This is simply either a choice as to what would be shared or a perspective. It depends on who's telling the story. Don't you think it's likely that both his feet and his head would be anointed? In fact, culturally, that is what would be expected. In Jesus' day, important guests at gatherings often had their heads anointed. Because they were important, they would have their head anointed. It was just a thing you did culturally to show honor. Likewise, because the streets were dusty, even if they were cobbled, there was dust all over the place, guests would expect that when they arrived at someone's home, some place where they, they were being hosted either as a party or dinner or a meal of some sort, their feet would be washed as a sign of courtesy and hospitality. Both the head and the feet of important guests would be anointed. There's no reason to doubt that both his head and his feet, as both were covered in all three Gospels, were anointed. There's nothing to worry about there. Now, at this point in the story, what would have, what should have been a lovely scene for all present actually starts to turn a little ugly. Those in attendance at this gathering actually start to protest at the sight of what would otherwise be considered a lovely gesture. If there weren't ego problems, if there weren't jockeying for power, if there wasn't self-righteousness in that room, everybody would say, wow, that is a beautiful thing that she's done, just like Jesus thought. If people sat at that meal, objectively observing, trying to entertain one another out of love, there would have never been this problem, but there was. Everyone in the room appeared to have a problem with it except for Jesus and that woman. The Gospels actually give us two points of view. In Mark and Matthew, it's the disciples that have something to say. But in Luke, it's the host that has an opinion on what's happening. Again, we talked about this last week, but I think it's worthwhile to go over it again. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed her, his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if were a prophet, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. Simon the Pharisee's trying to make excuses. Oh, I, I knew he wasn't all that special. 
If he was really a prophet, he would have known the kind of person that she is. That's why I don't respect him. He's not a prophet. Let that woman touch him like that. What's wrong with you? And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. When there was a certain creditor which had two debtors, the one owed five hundred pence and the other fifty. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered in thy house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet. You showed me no respect. You didn't give me the respect due. Who are you to judge? But she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman since the time I came in hath not ceased to kiss my feet. A very, very humiliating thing to do. When you feel so low, Compared to another, you'll kiss their feet. That's not new to us. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. You know, whenever you ask some Christians, especially so-called conservatives or fundamentalists to list the sins of the world, you'll undoubtedly get what I call the big three. What you will likely hear is that the sins of the world are drinking, swearing, and pornography. Sure, some people vary, mix in a few things. Some people will add smoking or drugs or homosexuality. But from that crowd, from the conservative, fundamental, religious leadership crowd, for some reason, you never hear on their list of sin, the sin of spiritual pride. Spiritual pride was one of the sins Jesus hated the most. Deservedly. He's the king of kings. And Simon the Pharisee, gave him no respect because in himself, Simon felt he didn't need to. All this Pharisee could see was the sin in this woman. All Jesus saw was her humility. You know, that's the difference between religion, which is man-made, and Christianity, which is God-given. Religion is forever trying to categorize you. It's forever trying to rank you. It's forever trying to take the sins that you left at the cross back off the cross and put them back on you. 
Christianity. True Christianity recognizes that the problem of sin is completely dealt with once the sinner confesses and believes in faith that their sins have been taken out into the wilderness by a fit man never to be seen again. Now, one of the keys to that statement I just made is confession. Confessing your sins now, and I'm not talking about confessing to a priest. I am talking about confessing your sins to God. Let's read again what Jesus told that Pharisee. Wherefore, I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. Jesus was directly attacking spiritual pride. He wasn't saying that Simon had little to forgive. He was saying that Simon loved little because Simon thought he had little to forgive. This is why gossip is so dangerous. Because the minute you start to gossip, you're ranking yourself and your sin and your sinful condition above someone else's. Which means you love little. Because you think you have little to forgive. Jesus was rebuking that Pharisee's inward view of spiritual thing and his hypocritical sense of moral superiority. And once again, he was teaching us all a lesson. Admitting your faults, admitting your weaknesses is never easy, believe me. But that's why it's so critical. If we can overcome our own pride and face the truth of who we really are, then we're on the road to recovery, true recovery, permanent recovery. We called it sanctification a couple weeks ago, just a fancy theological word. That's why confession is necessary. You see, you'll only confess that which you're sorrowful for, that which you feel is sinful. Before you'll confess, you must be humbled. You must be humiliated. People don't like that word, humiliated. But humiliation is the only way to properly face Christ. When you forget everything about yourself that you hold so dearly and you lay it at his feet, that's where recovery begins. Listen, the Bible it doesn't really matter what you feel, because let me tell you something. The Bible makes it clear that all of mankind is 
is flawed and in need of a rescue. Confession, when we confess, when we admit our sins, when we admit our weaknesses and our failures, our pride breaks down. And it opens our spirits to our need of a Savior. Simon the Pharisee didn't think he needed a Savior. He didn't think he needed a Messiah. Listen, as a Pharisee, all the Pharisees knew that Jesus precisely fit what the Bible had said the Messiah would be. They all knew it. They were all very familiar with Scripture. That's what made them Pharisees. They believed the Messiah was coming. That's what made them a Pharisee, unlike the Sadducees. They knew. They were the fundamentalists of their day. They were the conservative religious people of their day. They knew that Jesus fit the bill of Messiah. They knew it. Nicodemus tells us that. He was one of them. He was one of the chief of them. He said, we all know you're straight from God. That's what he said to Jesus. They've been talking about it. The Pharisees, it's a relatively small community. Somebody actually numbered them. I forget what the number is, but it's relatively small. At, at the time of Jesus, they all knew each other. They knew that Jesus was the Messiah. They, at least they knew he fit the bill. But he threatened them. He threatened their rank. They were so far above everybody else. Why are you putting us through this, John? Because I hate religion. Religion has caused more people to go to hell than I think all the bars and camel cigarettes combined. That Pharisee didn't love much because he didn't think he needed to. It's obvious that in the mind of Simon the Pharisee, Jesus was no different than any other guest in his home and actually, judging from how poorly Simon treated Jesus, he viewed him even less than a normal guest. He went out of his way to ignore Jesus. Didn't anoint his head, didn't anoint his feet, didn't greet him properly when he arrived. Certainly, he was, would have been worried that, what would all the other Pharisees sitting around think if I did all that? My position around here would be reduced if I showed Jesus any sort of respect, even though I know he's the Messiah. He called him master. You don't go throwing that around, especially a Pharisee. How different he was than that so-called sinful woman. She treated Jesus like a king. In the best way that she could, and then some. She respected him. 
She knew who he was, so did Simon, but she knew who he was and she acted on it. By what she did for him. And on top of all that, she expressed her love. The story of the alabaster box shows us what's needed to get the praise of our beloved master. Humiliation and love. It takes a recognition, a humbling, a breakdown of our spiritual pride. Remember this from the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We've taught on that verse many times here. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The original Greek word that gets translated there, there is powerful. And it has a direct relationship to what I've been saying this morning. The original Greek word is pronounced patochos with that guttural sound. Patochos means to be completely dependent, to be completely without hope in one's own strength for everything. The picture is that of a helpless, resourceless creature, someone or something completely incapable of helping himself, completely, in every area. Someone who can only survive by external means. In other words, what they require for survival in every area must come from someone else. Now, the use of this word patochos in the Sermon on the Mount is interesting because it's not referring to material helplessness, but rather spiritual helplessness. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in, in spirit. You know, most of us probably never thought that such a thing existed. We aren't taught that. You can do anything. Just put your mind to it and you can achieve happiness. My mother would tell me, God helps those that help themselves. Well, all of that sounds pretty exciting, but not a bit of it is true. Not a bit of it is true. You cannot do it in yourself, Simon the Pharisee. You may think your rank is high, but your rank is actually below the sinful woman. Until you realize that in your spirit you're without hope, when in your spirit you reach the point that you know you need a rescue, Jesus says that's when you become blessed and the kingdom is given to you and he will recognize you as having gotten it, like he did the sinful woman. In fact, she takes this to an extreme. We've already covered this in a previous lesson, but I think it bears repeating because it's an attitude. She's reflecting an attitude that's palpable, that's tangible, that's noticeable. You can't be a Christian and it be hidden. 
to the outside world, this woman was, well, at best, making a fool out of herself. She's so caught up in her efforts that she does what can only be described as social suicide. In this story in Luke, we're told that she let her hair down to wash the Lord's feet. Can you imagine? That's kind of shocking for us today, but imagine what it was in those days. In those days, no self-respecting woman would ever do such a thing. It could actually be dangerous, like physically dangerous to do things that were culturally unacceptable. Didn't matter to her. At the very least, she threw all of her pride aside to show Jesus her love, something that religious leader wouldn't dare do. Humble himself, anoint his head with his feet, give him a kiss. Hello? Who is he? Carpenter's son. What's he done for me? Simon was rebuked. The sinful woman was praised. And the difference is the attitude. It's the expression of their love and their gratitude and their position with respect to Jesus that made the difference between the two of them. I'm hoping I made my point. Perhaps a little belabored? Sue me. Let's move on. Now, when we switch over to Matthew and Mark, we actually get to see another ugly side of this scene, perhaps more ugly. You know, I, I think we can look at the Gospels as one of those panoramic photographs. You know what I'm talking about, right? It's that technological marvel that lets us see a scene in its entirety. It captures everything that happened in a moment of time. It captures things that may not have been in our field of view at the time. That's what the Gospels are like. In these two other Gospels, we've turned away from the Pharisee and his failures, and now the failures of the others in the room in the same moment come into view. And we get yet another lesson. There came unto him a woman having an alabaster box of very precious ointment and poured it on his head as he sat at meat. But when his disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, To what purpose this is this waste? He looked at this beautiful ceremony as waste. For this ointment might have, might have been sold for much and given to the poor. You know, one of the things that must have frustrated Jesus the most was this near constant lack of discernment on the part of the disciples. It seems like they never got it right. It seems that Every time a learning moment came, they were focused somewhere else. And that's what happens here. The disciples 
missed an opportunity to just sit there and observe a beautiful spiritual lesson unfold because their focus was on earthly things. And on that, Jesus reacted. When Jesus understood it, he said unto them, Why trouble ye the woman? For she hath wrought a good work upon me. For ye have the poor always with you, but me ye have not always. In the beginning, we mentioned that when Jesus said she hath wrought a good work, he was saying that what she had done was praiseworthy. But it was also valuable and useful. This act of anointing Jesus actually had a practical use, a practical value. Now, this may come as a surprise to you, but not only, listen to me very, very closely. Not only was this an expression of love, not only was she expressing her gratitude and her humility, but she was expressing her faith. Her kind act was also teaching us about the purpose of Christ on earth. It was teaching us, we just passed through the so-called Christmas season, and that I know of not one person actually discussed the real purpose of Jesus on the earth. This woman taught us that lesson. And she taught us the importance of faith above all other acts of humankind. Let's read it again. There came unto him a woman having an alabaster box of very precious ointment and poured it on his head as he sat at meat. But when his disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, To what purpose is this waste? For this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. That was Matthew 26, through 26 verse 7 through verse 9. The Gospel of Mark, it's almost identical. Now, let me just say quickly that I think it would be a little unfair to assume that these men were insincere about wanting to help the poor. In my opinion, nothing in these stories tells me anything differently. Nothing in this story impugns their motivation to give to the poor. In fact, here in Matthew, Jesus seems to think they were genuine Jesus seems to think they were actually worried for the poor because he answered their objection exactly as they offered it. So I believe we should assume that they were indeed thinking charitable thoughts, but that doesn't actually make it okay. And here's why I say that. Now, this is important because we're about to learn something. Listen to me closely with an open mind. There's no doubt that charitable giving is a vital Christian function. Jesus made that clear. Paul makes that clear. The early church made that clear. However, in many, many parts of the modern 
church world, helping the poor has actually become the primary mission. It has been my experience that for so many, the halo of charity actually shines brighter than any other Christian expression. And that, listen to me, was never the intention. Never. Now I know this is sensitive ground. And I'm sure that some of you are a little bit angry with me for saying that. But I'm going to say it again. Taking care of the poor is an auxiliary function of the church and not its ultimate goal. It's incidental to everything else we do. Now, I have no doubt that serving the poor has led many souls to salvation because exhibiting mercy and love as a representative of Christ by meeting the material needs of the community is a powerful tool in convincing people to give their life to Christ, but not the only way. There are plenty of rich people that have something to eat all the time that are going to hell. And what are we doing for them? Christian giving has its place and Jesus makes that clear. For ye have the poor always with you, but me ye have not always. Let me say again, don't misunderstand me. I believe helping the poor is noble and should be done. But it is, a, it is an expression of Christ's personality in you. And like him, you won't be able to help it, but that is not your primary mission. Don't argue with me. Argue with Jesus. He's the one that said it. Giving to the poor is not the most important thing you are called to do. All right, smarty pants, what is? What's more important than giving to the poor? Let's see what Jesus has to say. For ye have the poor always with you, but me ye have not always. For in that she hath poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. Now that's a weird thing to say, don't you think, at a dinner party? Don't you think? I mean, he was, he was standing there, and he said that she was anointing him for burial. He was talking about his death as if it had already occurred. And she was treating him, according to Jesus, as if his death had already occurred. She was acting as if she wasn't really focused on what was in front of her. Now, this takes some attention, so I need you to listen closely. Many times over in the Gospels, we read that Jesus was teaching his disciples that his death was going to be important. And in the days and the weeks leading up to this event, the one in Simon the Pharisee's house, Jesus had told them, listen, he had told them that his death 
was at hand. Matthew chapter 16, from that time forth, this, this happened beforehand. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. The other synoptic gospels say the same thing, Mark 8.31, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed. Let's go to Luke. Saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain. Jesus, before that day, before sitting there with Simon and Pharisee in the days or weeks prior to that, was teaching that he was going to die. One of the most difficult things to endure as a teacher, and I've been a teacher for many, many years, not just here, but in university as well. One of the most difficult things to endure as a teacher is students that don't listen. Especially when you're trying to teach something that's essential to their overall understanding. Now, I suppose, really, we can't be too critical of the disciples' lack of comprehension. It's a little frustrating but we can't really blame them too much. I mean, after all, Jesus was talking about things that had been prophesied, things that they had heard in the synagogues all their lives. And he was saying that those things were unfolding before them. I mean, that had to be a little difficult to fully process, don't you think? We're told that one of these days, that we'll look, look up and see Jesus coming to take us to be with him forever. Have you ever tried to imagine what that's going to be like? It's kind of difficult. And I'm sure when it really starts to happen, we're going to have to kind of wipe by our, our eyes and squint a little bit before we fully grasp what we're seeing. We may say, no way. You know how we say that all the time when something's happening, we kind of don't believe. No way. That's probably how we're going to react when what we've been told all our lives is going to unfold in front of us. So we kind of can get an understanding of why these guys, these disciples, these apostles weren't actually grasping it. We can understand it. We're not forgiving it, but we understand it. The things of God are difficult to process. God's Word tells us some very incredible things. Some things that are difficult to ponder at first. What Jesus had told those disciples about his death either wasn't properly registering or they simply didn't have enough faith to invest their lives into it, to walk around as if it was going to happen. They were Their actions weren't reflecting that they believed what he said was going to happen. But in comes this woman. You see, 
the actions and the reactions of the other disciples revealed their unbelief, or at best their ignorance, but not this sinful woman. She showed that she knew that what Jesus had foretold was at hand. Her actions revealed her faith. She was preparing Jesus for what he said was going to happen, even though it was hard to understand and a little unpleasant. I'm sure she didn't want to face the ugliness of having to prepare a body for burial, especially a body that wasn't dead yet, especially a body that she loved so much. But she did it anyhow, out of obedience and faith. The woman that poured out the very precious oil on Jesus wasn't only expressing her gratitude to the Master. She was expressing her faith. And how that must have made him feel. I'm trying to tell you people something very important, Jesus is saying. I'm going to die. And that's important for you to know. You've got to be prepared for that. You've got to show that you understand that. And none of them did. Except that woman. She wanted to show him at least somebody got it, Jesus. I don't know how else to show you. Maybe it's this way. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. She hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. <laughs> That's a weird thing to say. But he was sincere. Matthew has it, For in that she hath poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. That's kind of a wimpy translation. Jesus said what she did, the action she took, was embalming. That's exactly what he said originally. You know what embalming is, right? Embalming is the preparation of a body for burial. Jesus said he poured that oil on him to embalm him. You think that was easy? No wonder she was crying. She had to accept that the man that she loved so dearly was going to die. That's why he came. She was showing her faith in what Jesus said in an incredibly vivid and I'll say again, shocking way. Jesus said he was going to die. She showed she believed it. She lived her life as if what Jesus said was going to happen, and that's called faith. Jesus said, you're separate. You're different. 
I've chosen you out of this world. Your actions should show that. Your actions should show that you believe that I've saved you. Even if it costs you your social position, even if it costs you something very monetarily precious, like that ointment, your action should reflect a faith that says nothing else really matters. Because if you really believe in what Jesus said about you and what he did for you, then nothing else does matter. He said, if you hate not your mother, father, brother, sister, and yea, your own life also, you can't be a disciple of mine. You can't even get started if you don't make that a reality in your life that nothing else matters. John, that's harsh. Blame Jesus. But I don't think I dare tell Jesus who stood there while they nailed hands, nailed his hands to wood as he was lifted up and gasping his last breath. I don't think I'm going to tell Jesus what I think is harsh. Jesus said he was going to die. And she showed she believed it. It was important to her to show him that she got it. She didn't care what anyone else felt. She wanted him to know. I get it. I don't know how I can show you that other than embalming you. That's the reality of this story. Now, if you read the commentators on this section of the gospel, they're going to tell you, well, she didn't really know what she was doing. It was really a coincidence that her act of kindness actually looked like embalming. Wrong. That woman knew exactly what she was doing. And it's my opinion that Jesus knew that this woman knew exactly what she was doing. You know why I believe that? Number one, he said, thy faith has saved thee. He said that what she did was faith, and it saved her. And then secondly, he praised her for it. He praised her for what she did. No one gets praised for accidentally getting something right. You don't commission a memorial for someone who just got lucky. Jesus said she did a useful, valuable, praiseworthy thing. It was useful because he needed to be embalmed for burial. In fact, if you remember after the crucifixion, the women went to the tomb to anoint his body to do what she'd already done. But he was gone. He didn't miss out on anointing. He did not miss out on this embalming because she did it a four-time. Didn't matter that the tomb was empty. Didn't matter that these women, women didn't get a chance to anoint him. She'd already taken care of the anointing. She had done a useful thing, something that had to be done. And so it was useful and praiseworthy. 
What does it take to get Jesus excited? Humility and faith. This woman showed that she got it. And she was desperate to show him because she loved him. What are you doing with your Christian life? What are you doing with what God has done for you? This is the point I'm trying to make. If you're spending all your time giving alms to the poor, what about the guy that saved you? Yes, it's important to him, no doubt. He said it's important that you take care of the least of my brethren. He, of course he said that. But what are you doing to show him that you get it? That you believe him? All he's asking you to do is to walk around as if what he told you is true is true. So that when people see you, they'll say, why are you acting so oddly? I'm not acting oddly. I'm walking around as if I believe something that's hard to believe. This woman showed, and perhaps she was the only one, this woman showed that she had faith in what Jesus said, even if it was unpleasant to think of. I believe that was part of the problem with the other disciples. They didn't want to believe. They didn't want to believe that the path to glory went to the cross. They were too focused on the glory part most of the time. Remember the time the two of them argued about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Most of the time, it appears that the disciples still thought that Jesus was going to be this earthly Messiah that they had been mistakenly taught was coming. Jesus never claimed any of that. Jesus never claimed any of that. His kingdom, he said, was not of this world. And he said so. And that woman heard him. And she believed him. And most important, she showed it. She showed in action her faith. The story never changes. You hear me? The story never changes. God is looking for those who will live as if they believe. I know how hard that is. I know it as much as you do. I chuckle at the people that say that the life of faith is some sort of cop-out. I tell you all the time, the life of faith is hard. Faith is not a human action. Doubt is so much easier because we get incomplete information all the time. So doubt is easier than faith. That's why God puts so much value on faith, because when you're exercising faith, you're rising above your nature and approaching His. If you want to know what Jesus finds praiseworthy, if you want to know what pleases Him, you want to know what gets His attention, the answer is simple, and it has never been anything else. It's faith. You've been listening to Time in the Chapel, a weekly program dedicated to bringing you in-depth biblical study. Join us again next time as we search scripture to learn more about God in your life and you in His plan. Time in the Chapel is a service of Chapel Ministries. Chapel Ministries is a non-denominational ministry with a mission to feed hungry souls. 
please consider supporting this program financially. For more information, please visit our website at www.timeinthechapel.com or email us at info at timeinthechapel.com. Be sure to look for us on Facebook by searching for Chapel Ministries. Click follow to get all of the latest information.